School CEO Conversations is an Aptogy Media production. We like to have insightful conversations with education's most inspiring and thoughtful leaders. In this episode, Prerequisites to Leadership, we talk with Dr. Victor Simon. Victor, thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast. We're really excited to dive into your own personal story and your own thoughts around leadership. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. It's uh, excited to be here as well. So just to start, could you actually share how you got into education in the first place? Yeah. You know, so I, I, I really owe it to a couple of teachers that made a big difference uh, in my life. I think lots of folks have a story like that where teachers have, have done something that goes above and beyond. And, um, you know, there was a couple that, that really intervened and advocated for me. You know, these are a couple of individuals that really took the time out to show that they cared. More importantly, I think, believed in me personally. I wasn't necessarily the most compliant uh, student or productive student up until late middle school, probably high school, when I had these individual teachers really step up and, and do some things different. I had moved a lot as a student and as a child before I graduated high school. I'd moved 19 times. Uh, There's a, a spell, in fact, where our, our, our family found some pretty hard times and we're homeless there for a little while. And uh, to have these individuals just jump in and show that they cared was really, really what got me hooked and uh, wanted me to perform and to try to just do as well as I could really for them. It was, it was a payback instantly and has been uh, ever since. So when you're thinking about your background and, and your own story, I mean, is that something that kind of still drives you and still pushes you today? Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, um, you know, when I was uh, 20 years old, I thought at that point I was first in my family, first generation college and uh, had a situation where uh, that I was I was shot and, and nearly killed. And when this happened, it was really that life flashing before your eyes and all the rest occurred for me and really just has driven me ever since. Uh, that's over 20 years ago now, but has really pushed me to say, you know, we need as much help as we can have get in our you know, system, essentially. And, um, you know, that's what I've done. So I've been driven ever since that moment. So now that you're in education, I was just wanting to see if you could share how you actually kind of went from being a teacher to now being superintendent. I just started uh, teaching as a science teacher, high school teacher in Chicago public schools. It's where I'm a proud graduate from as well. And, um, you know, I think it was just really the leadership as a teacher that is required, uh, brought me up to the next level of being a department chair, curriculum coordinator. And really, I describe it as there's this gravity of leadership that pulls you in. And I'm somebody that to those who much is given, much is expected in return is really a sort of driving force. And I've always just pulled into the next role, uh, which led to a principalship, uh, a regional director in Chicago public schools. It's called the network chief large system. And then to a um, relatively smaller school district out here in the nearby suburbs of Chicago. So you mentioned like this drive to to constantly move forward, constantly move up. And so I feel like a lot of people might hear that and they could take it as, well, you know, he just wants to, to quote unquote, you know, move up the ranks or play the politics of it. But, you know, you also mentioned, I mean, you really love being a teacher and enjoying that and that being a big drive for you, that teaching aspect. And so I was just curious, I mean, what has been that driver to kind of move into different roles and, and different roles within administration? Yeah, you know, I really appreciate that question. Thanks for for asking it. You know, it was other individuals that I work with, colleagues, that would share back, you know, they're getting that regular feedback loop where they're saying, wow, what you're doing is helpful. There's impact. You get a sense that you're having 
some impact on the system. As a teacher, it's at the classroom level, maybe a little bit bigger than that. You know, I've done some coaching and things like that for sports, and you know you have a direct impact on others. So it was about scaling up the impact. The first move after a department chair, that was easy in the sense of here to help my colleagues, but to leave that actual teaching role uh, to be a curriculum coordinator and then eventually a principal was really about scaling up and having more of an impact and then to the superintendent level, an impact community-wide. So it's always been about where could I give back the most. That's what drove me up. Certainly politics play a role in it, but that was not a driving force. So when you talk about wanting to make a bigger impact, I mean, was it where you were looking at it and saying, okay, look, I I see these opportunities. I know I can do a great job of this. Or was it something where you were seeing maybe like deficiencies and saying, okay, I know I'm the one that can fix this. I know I can help address this. Yeah, it was probably a little bit of both. I think it would be swayed more toward there are some deficiencies. I mean, look, the, the, the reality is that I probably had more as a student. I had more uh, negative interactions with teachers than positive ones as a student myself uh, and with principals and things of that nature. And I always thought there is a better way to do this. And one that was built more around relationships that were productive with students and things of that nature. You know, I had a lot of red flags that I carried in as a student and, and that hasn't gone away in society. So for me, it was about how could we do that part better? And um, that would be the lion's share of the reason. And so, Victor, I know that you do help coach up new superintendents. In fact, you work with the University of Illinois in Chicago, as well as Concordia University, helping to train superintendents in their superintendent program. So you actually have a lot of experience working with up-and-coming superintendents, as well as being a current one. And I was just curious, like thinking about, especially this past year, like how has your understanding of leadership, your understanding of the superintendency changed or evolved? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's really been the last number of years I've been doing uh, sort of adjunct work for the last eight or nine years. And it's really pushed me to dial in or focus in more on what might be a framework for effective leadership. And really this year from all 2020 and then well into this school year, of course, with the COVID-19 crisis and that public health crisis, yes, it's pushed me to really uh, define or articulate an effective leadership framework that I'd be happy to talk more about. Yeah, that would be great. Can you tell us more about the framework and what it looks like on a day-to-day basis? Sure. I mean, I think when you hear it's a five-part framework and, you know, what I talk about with this, it's these are the elements that you need to be an effective leader or it's bust. I, I know that could sound, you know, coming off pretty quickly. They're going like, wait a second, it's it's binary. It's either this or, or, or it's it's that. These are the five parts. It's relationships or bust, communication or bust, a political frame or bust, deep roots, uh, which is one I'll talk a lot about if I have the time, deep roots or, or bust. And then finally, stay humble and hungry or bust. Those are the five parts. And, and hearing it, you might say, yeah, that seems to make some sense. But generally, you operate across these five parts of this framework every day, all day, I would imagine, in little exchanges uh, throughout your day, and, and also at the macro level throughout the course of your work with the community. So, so those are the five parts for me. So why is it or bust? You know, there's an urgency to this work. There's a phrase that I like to use, and it's casual language. It's an impact statement for me, but it's, this ain't no dress rehearsal, I like to say. And it's, it's about what we do right now matters. So for me, the bust part of it is really a reflective point for the leader. It doesn't mean that you're getting walked out of your office or anything like that, or, or, or the building falls down. It essentially just means that 
are you an effective leader or not? There's a difference between effective management and effective leadership. So what I'm talking about here with these five components is the latter part. This is effective leadership, and that's what I mean by the bust part of it. If, if these aren't in place, then I think that you fall short of being an effective leader ultimately, and that's what I mean by it. Well, I like when you talk about the or bust part because, I mean, you're thinking about students, right? Education has a real impact, a real impact on the rest of someone's life. Like there is no opportunity or no option for mediocrity, right? We have to be 100%. We have to be absolutely on every single time, every day, because if we don't, I mean, there are real consequences to that. Yeah, I think that's a great way of saying it, Michael. And commitment is one of the prerequisites to have here, a high level of commitment. There are a couple others I could talk about, but you're absolutely right. I mean, to me, it's it's so important, and you do get one shot at this as a student, that it has to just be done at this high level. And and there's and there's no real shame in, in not being able to do that. It's just recognizing whether or not you are uh, or are not. And, and it is important. It is critical. I know that firsthand. My life changes drastically without two teachers that took the time. And I am blessed, and I know it's a strong privilege that I have in my life to have two teachers step up and do something extra for me personally. Now, other teachers might have done a whole heck of a lot. I personally don't remember it. I remember being more scolded and thought of less than and what I couldn't do, what deficiencies I might have had, and those kinds of biases that might have played in uh, through my experience. And that's what I'm driven by. So yeah, to me, it's, it's, it's or bust. Which of these five elements do you think surprises people the most? You know, it's, it's, that's, it's, it's a great question. I mean, you know, everyone understands relationships and communication, of course. But right. the reason I say political frame, it's the first two relationships and communication tied together. You can have great relationships. You could be a great communicator. But tying those two together is where you operate within this political frame. And, and it doesn't always have to be a negative connotation to politics. It's understanding that there's competing interests. And what I don't apologize for is that I say the student's interests, and I believe this and I operate this way, the student's interests are first in line. When I talk about teachers and I use the word in anything I write, it's a capital T. I mean, I make a point to always pay homage to teachers in that small regard. It's a proper noun for me. These are important folks that play important roles in our society. And having their interests be just behind the students isn't a bad thing. This is service oriented. So, so I think in that regard, that's, that catches people by surprise, the competing interests in politics. But I think it's more the explanation around deep roots. Oftentimes leadership is you take a big step forward and do something drastically different and you create this gap between yourself and others. This year in particular with challenges we've had, it's not always about taking step forward. In fact, more times than not, it's about holding your ground and where you're principled and you look to your left and right and realize other folks that said they believed in the same things actually ended up taking a step back. So it might look like you moved way forward or took a giant leap forward, did something drastically different. But what was different is that you just stayed principled. And those are the deep roots that I'm talking about. So where are you tried and tested, uh, battle tested in some cases? And another phrase I use on this, calm seas don't make good sailors. That, that plays a role. And it really did this year for sure. So I wanted to touch on that political frame aspect a little bit, because, I mean, when we're thinking about teachers, right, or we're thinking about administrators, they were all teachers at one point, and most teachers, you know, go into teaching because they want to have, you know, impact on students' lives. 
not to worry about politics, right? So I imagine that that could be a really tough adjustment for new administrators. And so I was wondering what pushback or or any concerns you might get from you know, potential administrators? I mean, is it something where you've seen them, them have kind of a tough time adjusting to that political framework? Yeah, I think um, where, where individuals might struggle in, in dealing with the political frame is, is the fact that they ultimately approach it in a way that, hey, listen, I'm gonna try to make everyone happy here. And there's sometimes, and I think you have to be comfortable with some level of discomfort in the sense that when you make a decision, not everyone's going to be happy. And that doesn't always mean that you have to go back to sort of change everything up so that everyone's left completely satisfied. It just, from my perspective, it just doesn't work that way. So in that regard, that's where a lot of the coaching and development with budding or existing sitting leaders that I do work around as a consultant or or as a uh, professor, when we're working with individuals to say, hey, listen, you know, what is it that you stand for? And talk to me about some decisions you made where that played a role. And oftentimes that exposes the situation where they're left with, you know, maybe I, maybe I did buckle a bit there. And that might not have been in the best interest of the student in that regard. Easy to say uh, that you always are going to do things right for the student first. Uh, not as easy to do. And this particular year with this challenge in, in COVID, I, I think really put that on full display. Yeah, that sounds like it goes back to the deep roots you're talking about. It sure does. Yeah. So that's what I mean when these five elements are all interconnected and, and they play a role. And, you know, you may have strengths, you know, in one and maybe not so much in the other, but I think they they can make up for for one another. I mentioned there are some prerequisites to it as well. And I think when we talk about individuals that they have to be and you said it, Michael, 100 percent committed to this work. So a high level of commitment. What does that look like in education? I mean, you are serving the interests of others. This is a service-oriented role. So that's that's one of the prereqs for sure, is that you have to have a high level of commitment. So I wanted to dive into that idea about being having deep roots and just wanted to clarify a little bit about it though first, because you know, obviously a lot of superintendents are probably talk about having like deep roots in the community, deep roots where they are, but it was just kind of wondering what does that look like day to day for you? Like what do you actually mean by that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, great point. I'm glad you asked to, to flesh that out a bit. Yeah, absolutely. Deep roots and being sort of grounded in your community. That's that's one aspect of it. That's not what I mean by it. I mean, it's important. And I think that's probably more goes back to relationships. I would say that that explanation is coded more in the relationships part of the framework. Deep roots is about you as a leader. You know, what do you stand for? What do you believe in? And then at what point do you get challenged in a sense where you can demonstrate that belief? Yeah, because saying and doing are, are different. The gap there is, and for some, is wide. So, you know, when, when we think about deep roots, you know, there's, there's another bunch of sayings out there that talk about this, but, you know, a tree with deep roots really doesn't fear a stiff wind, you know, and, and, and in that regard, it's kind of like, hey, what is it that you believe in? Where are you grounded? And, and some talk about it different ways, you know, like they plant the flag on a hill and that's where they're going to stand and fight kind of a deal. And I don't always mean it in the sense of conflict. But it, it might come to that in a sense of you really have to push because those are your beliefs. That's what I mean by deep roots. How are you hardwired as a leader? It sounds like this has a lot to do with values, too. Um, and 
you know, thinking back how it links into communication, like communicating your values. So I've been a teacher for eight years. And one thing that I've always loved about strong administrators is knowing what to expect as far as how they're going to make decisions, knowing their values, and also knowing that they're going to stay true to those values, which sounds a lot like the deep roots that you mentioned. Yeah, I think you're you're right on. I mean, when we talk about leaders, and there's work out there that's been done and plenty of research out there about what do individuals expect from or want from their leaders, trust, consistency, compassion, those are at the top. So how do you build that kind of level of trust from folks? It's because of the fact that you're sitting here saying, you know, I know what to expect from this individual, from this leader. So I wanted to touch on the last piece of that framework, right? The stay humble and stay hungry. And yeah, you know, I know you know, being in the Midwest, I don't know maybe if that's informed that humble part or not, but was just kind of curious, like why humble and hungry? Yeah. You know, it's, I, I actually never really related the two with Midwest and, and humility, but <laughs> you know, some great work out there around, you know, the humble leader and the level five leader. It's, these are folks that are ambitious, but they're ambitious for the success of the organization not necessarily for all the accolades that might come along with an award or who knows what, but that's why you know I've selected and, and been working on this for a number of years now to tie them together, that humility, but the hunger part is about, it's not that you arrive as a leader, you're always grinding away, you're always thinking about the continuous improvement cycle, we call the plan, do, check, act cycle of continuous improvement. You're hungry for that. You're ambitious about the organization always growing. So humility, of course, but also that hunger part uh, is important. And I think it's special to say that the two are tied together. Uh, to borrow a phrase from you know this, this, the research out there about level five leaders, you know, that's what you'll find. Ambitious, not necessarily for themselves, but for the organization. That's what I mean by it. I absolutely love that idea of being hungry because I imagine that also really lights like a fire of a sense of urgency among your staff. Like when you're a teacher and you know that your administrator is, you know, communicates like we are hungry to get better. We are hungry to do better for our students. You're like, yeah, that's something I can get behind because nothing's more frustrating to other like, you know, ambitious professionals than to hear like, well, this is how it's always been done. This is just the way we do things. Yeah, this is just the way we do things. And, you know, the idea of being hungry doesn't leave room for that. I, I agree with you. I, I think you, you said it better than I did. And I, I, I love it. I mean, I think it's, it's really about lighting that fire, but to maintain a sense of urgency, you know, that, that, that that's not easy work at the organizational level. One of the things I talk to budding leaders a lot about and you know, folks might have heard the analogy before about this, the fable of the boiled frog. It's like, you know, frog in tepid water, bring in temperature up slowly, boiled frog, uh, drop a frog in boiling water, hops out. Now, this has been myth busted, and I'm not encouraging anyone to test it, of course, but <laughs> the, idea, the idea behind it is that, you know, I'm a frog that's willing to jump. You know, if you're not sensing that something in your environment needs to be adjusted or isn't quite right, and you sit there while that temperature is rising, you've just been co-opted. And the status quo is going to be maintained. You could be certain of it. And the system in place will get the predicted results it's designed to do. So I, I'm, I'm really trying to inspire leaders that I work with. Be the frog that jumps, right? That sense of urgency. Yeah, humility, of course, but that hunger part cannot be forgotten for sure. So be willing to jump. So I wanted to Talk a little bit more about that hungry part, because, I mean, we alluded to some of the statements that, you know, I'm sure you've heard educators make, I've heard educators make, right? I'm sure we all have. And 
when you're looking at districts, when you're looking at schools that like really don't have that growth mindset, I mean, I was kind of curious, like where that comes from. I mean, is it just from that leader not being hungry, that leader not having that growth mindset? Or, was, or where does that lack of growth mindset really stem from? Yeah, gosh, I mean, it's it's I, I, without stopping short of getting too judgmental about it. But I mean, painting with broad strokes here, you've nailed one of them. I mean, there is a fixed mindset out there and a growth mindset. I have met lots of leaders that sort of do have this air about them that they've arrived, you know, they're at the, they're at the superintendent level. And, and that's what, that's what happens. They, they lost the ability to recognize that there is something hot, that the temperature is rising. So they don't jump and therefore are not actively working against the status quo in place. So they get the results they're supposed to get. And, and that's basically what I would say is an effective manager. Things are working just fine. It looks all, you know, that, Everything's in place the way it's supposed to be. But in terms of that, that urgency and hunger part, you won't find it. Uh, so I think, yes, it's just lack of growth mindset. Yes, it's sort of this, you know, I've arrived to a different position, so I just maybe lose sight of it. And that's unfortunate. It's something I think people can prepare for in advance. But this idea that you talk about, like folks just kind of getting beaten down by it or disaffected by it, you really do have to work personally to, to push that back. This is not easy work when you're when you're approaching it in a way to try to constantly improve, it's not easy. It, it, it does seem easy in the sense of managing things. The bells work, the rooms are clean, things are ordered and in place. Sure. But that's so like, you know, first level, if you're trying to, and there are levels to this, if you're trying to move an organization and improve an organization, uh, it takes a lot of energy, emotionally, physically, all the rest. So you know, yeah, uh, people can get burned out by it and disaffected by it or just downright beaten down by it. Because uh, as you both probably are well aware, moving an organization or just even challenging or questioning the status quo, uh, it, it, it does come with a, quite a bit of pushback. So you tap into those deep roots really quickly and often. And, and like I said, it takes energy. Just to kind of touch on that idea of burnout, um, we're having a ton of superintendents leaving their districts this year. And I think that that's true at the building level too, lots of principals. What advice would you have for those people who are kind of reconsidering or maybe just coming to a place where they feel like they can't be successful? Yeah, that's, a, that's I mean, you have to, it's a machinery uh, overall, right? Like you have your, the personal wheels are turning, your family gears are turning. If those aren't turning the right way, then all the other components that are impacted by that, your work, your role, the organization you serve, those things aren't going to be quite as effective. So you really have to do, whether it's your soul searching or prayer or your, or your own sense of humor or colleagues, wherever you're doing that sort of self-care and ongoing reflection. And I think this comes with folks that have a growth mindset. They don't get bothered by it as much because they, they understand this too shall pass and they'll learn from it. People that already have a growth mindset and think ahead are able to see the silver linings and challenges like this year and other challenges they might have gone through as a leader. So it might not bother folks that are wired that way much, as much, but certainly you have to think about it in ways that where do you drive your self-care from? Family, friends, whether it's you know, spirituality or you know, healthcare, whatever it is. You do have to be cognizant of that because burnout is very real. This year, more than most, you said that you're you're seeing it happen, that people are leaving a little bit early. I'm seeing it too. Colleagues that I didn't think were retiring for another couple few years or said they would, that was their plan, uh, are leaving this year. So, so I definitely am seeing it happen, district level, building level as well. So for you personally, like how do you manage that struggle? I mean, especially when things get tough. 
when we talk about the deep roots and all that kind of stuff, I remind myself often that yeah, I, I'm very blessed to be the, in a role that I'm in. I, I have a grateful heart and I approach this work from with a grateful spirit. So I know, and I make no mistake about the fact that I've, I've come a pretty long way. I know other folks have faced all kinds of challenges and all the rest, but I mean, it, it's, so I just, I'm appreciative. And I've said earlier uh, in, in our cast that, you know, to those who much is given, much is expected in return. So this is another day at the office in a sense, you know, like it's challenging, but I know it will, it will pass. And there's things that we're learning from it. So I'm very future oriented. So the moment that this hit us, the pandemic hit us, we're, we were wired and thinking about, hey, listen, this isn't going to last forever. And what can we do to get stronger? Change is inevitable. Growth is optional. So when change hits, and this was obviously something that impacted us and no one saw coming essentially, but we can grow from it. And if we don't, at some point, someone has to own up and say, that's on us, on the organization. If we didn't get stronger because of this challenge, you know, that we, we failed in some regard. So I look at it that way. And that's what keeps me, you know, rolling and I have a good crew around, um, which is a big help of leaders uh, here locally and colleagues that I work with uh, closely. You know, I feel like that's a huge part about being a leader, right, is to get other people to do things for you. And it's, it's not all on you to do it, right? You need to get other people involved. That's right. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, there is, they say there's no I in team, right? But there is an I in get it done. Uh, so in some cases, you know, that's true. Not everything is going to get uh, teamed up and committed up. Uh, you have to make decisions and be willing to make decisions as the leader. Uh, but you're right. You know, you do build up your leadership team to where, you know, we could all pull from each other. I, I know I've used a lot of analogies, but they work really well for me. And as a leader, you know, we all talk about rowing in the same direction. I just imagine this. I've never part of a row team or anything like that, but I, we all row in the same direction. And boy, does that look smooth. And no one would ever dare in a situation like that, stick their oar in the water in the wrong direction and turn the boat over. But you can lift the oars out of the water for a second, for a few strokes or what have you. As your team keeps on moving, you can get back into the rhythm. So we tell people here in our district, if you have to pull your oar out of the water for a day, uh, a half a day, whatever it is, do it. You just don't row in the opposite direction. You know, we're pulling in the same direction as a team, and that's what's important for us. So I was curious on your take on this because, you know, we look at most educators, right? They're typically good at school, right? They were they were successful in school, uh, whatever you want to call that. But I know you talked about your own personal struggles with school. And I was wondering, like, when we look at education, maybe that struggle with the growth mindset, from your perspective, how much do you feel like maybe stems from that issue that, you know, the people who are leading this and are carrying this out are the people that were successful and, and maybe didn't have to struggle as much. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's an important one and part of a driving force behind the work that I do. Um, you know, when I think about my experience growing up in, in, in public housing and having this uh, situation where we're homeless and those kinds of things, and I even shared that, that I was shot nearly killed. Those are not certainly not prerequisites to being a, a, a good leader. But, and I, you know, I'm chuckling about it sitting here today as a grown man and blessed to have a family and all the rest, but, you know, those are really tough. So it helps me be clarified in my sense of leadership and in my approach to leadership. But I do, I do see that happening. I do see that folks that the system that played well, that they gave them the results that worked for them, do perpetuate the system, do see it as a working situation and kind of bring in this this bias of, well, it worked for me. Why is it not working for you? That to me is not a sense of cultural responsiveness. That's a sense of just sort of like blinders are on. 
and everyone should just do the same thing. And, and that's not effective. That's not effective in a classroom. It's not effective as a leader, whether it's a principal or a superintendent. So yeah, I do think adversity does challenge that growth mindset. You're always looking to tinker and get better. But when you're at the front of the pack, I mean, you're not necessarily looking to challenge the way things are done. This is like, how do we preserve to keep it the way it is? It's worked well for me. We see that being talked about nationally, globally, you know, in, in other contexts of society as well. Well, and you say worked well, and and I almost view it as like, quote unquote, worked well, because, you know, for me, like, you know, I got straight A's through school, right? I was, quote unquote, good at the system. I was good at school. But for me, I did not have to struggle academically or, or really put in that work academically really until I got into grad school, right? And so for me, I feel like it almost kind of hampered my success because it didn't force me to struggle academically early on. I, you know, it really kind of helped cap that growth mindset in some ways. I totally understand what you mean by that. And, you know, we've gone through just recently, right? The last decade or so, you hear a lot about grit and perseverance and, and growth mindset. And, you know, I mean, yeah, folks that have a lot of privilege in their, in their families that send their kids to grit camp, you know, like this is not the deep roots that I talk about are not things that are read about and are not things that are store-bought and you get when you leave a conference. You know, so it doesn't mean that how do I rewind the clock and get some adversity in my life? You know, that's not it either because, you know, how I handled adversity, some people crumble under situations that I've been through personally as a child. And that's there's no shame in that. It's just how people cope with their challenges and being wound up around it can get better, take a step ahead, progress over perfection, all those kinds of hard wires are important. You're right, uh, Michael, when, when things are going well, you know, that muscle, if it exists in that sense, like that muscle, you're not exercising. So, so when it does come up that you're challenged and that you're facing some adversity, you haven't had a lot of practice. Now, I don't mean individuals have to be traumatized to, to be prepared for the next challenge. Right. But, you know, it is something to consider. Of, I see it. I, I honestly sit here and can tell you I have advantages of the challenges that I've faced and have overcome. I have advantages as a leader. I know that. I see it. I've, 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 I've lived it. But would I trade it in or not? You know, I, I can't have that conversation. It's not reality. So we have to think about that. Where does this work out in a classroom uh, for individuals that have tremendous adversity in their life? Sometimes they're not you know, getting the best service in a school district. They're not even noticed what the challenges are. And those that it's working, quote, unquote, as, as you put in, I like that a lot, quote, unquote, working well for, you know, essentially, we're just sort of socially promoting them to the next step. In the end, both sides of that coin have to really be addressed. Yeah, absolutely. I'm thinking about how we kind of decide who becomes the next generation of teachers. Like there's a shortage of leaders, but there's also a very real national teacher shortage. When I went into teaching, I definitely didn't think it that the parts of my life that I struggled the most with as a kid would be the biggest things that my students would connect to me about as a teacher. Yeah, yeah, I would. And, you know, your service and what you talk about in a sense of a thoughtful ally and being able to respond and relate, you know, that's what it is as a student. And I mean, as a human being, you have your sort of antenna up and you're looking for whether or not the people you deal with and have exchanges with in real life are genuine or not. And the more adversity and, you know, you, you, you go through these different challenges, some of those things get maybe out of whack, you know, and you're judging right away and you're saying, hey, I can't trust here. And, you, you know, you carry some of those issues. I, I don't think about it as, as dealing with a trauma, but in the sense of my childhood, how do I think about the way that I 
perceive the world. You know, certainly there are traumatic events. Certainly I cope with them in different ways. And it, it, it affects all of my relationships, how I build them, how I maintain them and sustain them. But what it's all about in terms for me of cultural responsiveness is really to be able to, to relate respectfully from folks that have a background or a culture similar to yours, as well as those from other cultures or backgrounds similar to yours. Incarceration is not necessarily a cultural element, let's say, or, or in some cases, maybe there's a higher preponderance or that kind of thing. But generally speaking, what are the elements that folks relate to? And that's what it's about. You say thoughtful ally, you know, I would agree. You, you say being a good listener, you know, I would agree. I'd also add on being genuine. That's to me what that work is about. Yes, it gets talked about in different ways in professional development, but when you are able to include students' own cultural references into the relationship in a classroom, you're winning. You're winning as a teacher, the students are winning, the community and the classroom you built is winning. You know, that that's what it's about. How do you include that in a respectful way? To me, that's the lane that we need to stay in with that work because that's what's genuine. It's about building effective, productive, positive relationships with children. That's what it's got to be about from, from pre-K all the way up and through high school and beyond, for sure. So you mentioned these as being prerequisites. I mean, do you feel like people actually like need to have these before they get into the job? So for me, yes, I, I would agree that if they're prerequisites, that means definitely every bit of the term. You have to have them. Can you get into the role? Sure. But will you end up with the same result of, quote, bust? I think you will. So well, there's a difference between taking a job and being a successful leader, right? Totally right. Yeah. And that's where I was going with it. So it's just like folks, <laughs> folks really need to think about sort of filtering that out right at the beginning. So in some of these courses that are for budding leaders and inspiring principals and superintendents, a high degree of competence is required. It's three C's. High degree of competence, high degree of commitment, high degree of cultural responsiveness. How do you demonstrate these things? How do you show these things? You know, when I talk to our principals in our school district and our assistant superintendent and so on and, and our leadership team, there's personal sacrifice that goes with being an effective leader. You know, I know I understand there's a work-life balance. That's important for sure. But what happens when there's a, a critical situation and the role that you serve in as a school leader and you have competing interests on the home front? You know, that's why there's support from the family to be an effective leader ultimately so what does that high commitment look like? Well, that high commitment might mean I'm not going to be able to be there for every single thing all of the time. And those are the kinds of questions we ask. How do you deal with work-life balance and, and competence, of course? You, you have to be a quick study. Things change. You know, I have colleagues now that are expert on like, you know, HVAC systems and filtering and, uh, you know, mask wearing and all the other stuff. And I'm actually one of them. You know, we're doing testing on site and all these kind of things that, many others are not doing. That required a high degree of competence to be a quick study, ready for change, be able to adapt and learn. That's what I mean by highly competent people. You know, you could pick up a script and roll out with it. That's important. Commitment, it's do whatever it takes. Cultural responsiveness, you know, we've talked a lot about that. But yes, Michael, I think these three are requirements. How do you look for them? What interview questions are asked? What courses do they take? And how do you study that kind of work, getting ready for the job? And not too far from an effective teacher. You know, they have the same three. And Victor, when you're looking at those prerequisites, and which one do you feel like is most often missing for people? Well, yeah, it's, I mean, it, it varies. I mean, cultural responsiveness in terms of a term is probably the one that's, you know, the most 
uh, current and newer for folks. So I would say that that's one people are still trying to figure out how to articulate to say, hey, I'm a smart person or highly competent, pretty easy to demonstrate in many ways, but and I'm highly committed, you know, and that comes in different ways, high visibility, you're always grinding away for the organization's best interests, you know, those things pretty easy to show how to be culturally responsive. This is the one where folks are really working right now in the sense of how are you hardwiring your district to attend to this? Because it's not just hiring an equity officer. It's not just doing a training one time. It's when you're constantly looking at the relationships that your staff have with your students, that's what it's about. How do you get that feedback constantly and looking for ways to be able to, as I said earlier, include students' cultural references in their experience, efficacy, right? That's where I think it's lacking the most. So I do want to move on a little bit from the framework and actually just kind of get to like, you know, maybe what's the point, right? Why does this even matter? And so when you're looking at a district leader, when you're looking at a superintendent, right, what does success as a leader look like? Yeah, I mean, listen, success being defined as doing the best you can where you are with what you have, I think it's a pretty good bar to start with. I mean, you can't all of a sudden just change the context of your community, you know, overnight. So just a genuine approach to success, I think, is going to be defined in different ways in different organizations. But what I can tell you it's not is a straight line from point A to point B. You know, you might see these kinds of memes out there. They'll be like, here's what people think success looks like. It's a straight arrow. Here's what success really looks like. And it's a twisty line, still has the arrowhead at the end in the same spot, but twists, turns, setbacks, you know, comebacks, all those kinds of things. So if your organization isn't already questioning things, that doesn't sound like a successful organization to me. Continuous improvement requires the four-step cycle plan, do, check, act. Plan and do, educators do a lot of that. A lot of planning, a lot of doing. And then they skip the check and the act part, and they just go back to a new plan and they do new things, and a new plan and they do new things. So it's a hyper continuous improvement cycle, but not really one. It's just a hyperactivity cycle. Checking, that means like reflecting and digging in what's the dipstick read of relationships in your community. If the answer is, I have no idea, then you're not checking. And if you're not checking, you can't take corrective action. So to me, I know it's not a direct answer to what is success. That has to be defined by every organization, but it's about progress toward those ultimate goals. That's what success is going to be about. Yeah. And you talk about those ultimate goals. And I think one challenge that I've seen with school leaders is sometimes there's not that instant gratification by sometimes, almost always, like it's going to take some time. And so you have to balance being hungry and being very, you know, action oriented with also knowing that you're not going to receive the results of your, let's say, bond campaign for many years down the line. And, you know, even like just general school improvement plans, like these are long term goals and it can be hard to stay motivated by that. How would you like respond to a leader who feels like things are, you know, they're just turning their wheels, but don't feel like they're moving forward? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And I mean, I think if you enter leadership in, in terms of education and roles, and I haven't led in other contexts or elements of the economy or anything, but I'm an educator for the last 25 years. So I'll speak in this context. If you if you went into it thinking that you're going to get instant gratification and you're going to see results right away, there's some early fundamental element work that that you missed. I mean, so you've got to just, you know, you've got to just know. I mean, teachers, I, I love teaching. Uh, I still teach. And so at the end of a course, you get feedback, 
you know, it might take a number of weeks at the college level or a whole year for our elementary teachers and, and middle school, high school teachers. But you, you get feedback. People are telling you thank you. And you see all that on an annual basis, essentially. So for an organization, sometimes it's just the nudge and it changes the course. And you've got to know that that is success. Being able to just change the trajectory, you might not see it for a while, but knowing that you nudged it and changed the course a degree or two is going to have major impacts down the road. So it's just something that you know coming in. And if you get down about that, then I would say, you know, you have to pick up a hobby where you, if you have the time to do it and all that, you pick up a (laughs) hobby where you uh, can complete something. And whether it's, you know, I don't know, I painted a spare bedroom and it went from start to finish. You feel good about that. So if you need to take quick wins from different places, find them elsewhere, because sometimes it's about a nudge and believing that what we just did, we have to hang in there because what we just did set us on a course to success down the road. But you might not see those results right away. So this past year, I mean, we've obviously seen a lot with COVID and I know you know, you and the district have done a lot, not just in the building, but also with your community. And we've seen how kind of the scope of education in some ways has changed. And so I was wondering, like, from your perspective, you know, when we're looking at education now, it seems like no longer is it, you know, just going to the, you know, the schoolhouse doors, for example, I mean, it seems like the scope has just expanded so much. So for you, like, where do you feel like that scope should go or should it? Well, you know, I don't think it does. I mean, it's a, it's a quick just reaction back to the question is I, I just don't, I'm built in a way or I, I'm wired in a way that is, is looking forward. I don't know all of what I don't know yet. <laughs> so how we're going to be uh, serving our community best five years from now, 10 years from now, I, I'm not exactly sure. You know, but what I can tell you is that this year in particular, you mentioned a pandemic and yes, we're doing all kinds of things that many others aren't and helped others get to that point. What it has taught me is that we have to look at being an element or a a major cog in the wheel. Like we are a a, a hub in our community. So how can we continue to serve our communities in ways that we haven't quite thought of yet? So next year, when we're, I won't say post-COVID, because I don't think that's a term where we ought to use. But when I say post-crisis, that is a term I'm looking forward to using. So when we're post-crisis, Will our nurses be testing for the flu? Will they be testing for strep and mono? Yes, the answer is yes. They never did that before. They will be doing it in our community moving forward because that's one of the silver linings that we discovered here. This is something we could do to help take a little bit of load off of our healthcare system that got pressed really hard and then some would argue caught on their heels a bit with this pandemic. So in what other ways can we do that instructionally? So our remote educational program We have a remote educational policy that was approved by our forward-thinking Board of Education in 2016. We're the first district to have an e-learning program formally approved with the new laws in Illinois. In fact, we wrote the approval system for other districts that are using it now. So that forward-thinking, that future-ready sort of mindset, we think about how can we best serve students post-crisis. There might be some remote options that are best. Those have been in place in other in, in other areas throughout the country, even here, you know, with different foreign language programs and things like that that are that are done remotely now. So so where do we keep pushing on this? So I don't know that the the scope really is something that we see that there's a limit to. It's just where else can we be invested with our community and what ways can we help and best serve them? Well, it sounds like it goes back to that commitment and the deep roots, right? I mean, if we're really going to be committed to student success, then I mean students don't 
into the schoolhouse door, right? I mean, they go beyond that. So obviously education needs to as well. That's right. Yeah, I, lo- I love that phrase. And I've used it in a number of writings in our community updates and newsletters over time is, you know, where do we, where do this beyond the schoolhouse doors and beyond the schoolhouse walls? That's a conversation that's really worth having. You know, when we're sending out opportunities right now for families to have their 12 to 15 year olds vaccinated. You know, that's, that's something that not many people in, in the role sitting today have had that experience before. You know, um, so so where some are maybe not comfortable doing that and others are definitely myself included, very, very comfortable sending this kind of information and really encouraging everyone to what we say, be part of the solution. Community problems require community solutions. Uh, maybe in time for a different cast altogether, but anyone could take a look at our community. We were at national news and everything else a couple of years ago over uh, a sort of EPA issue with toxins in the air and this kind of thing in our community, mm-hmm. we had to pull together prior to COVID. So we had a little bit of a breather about six months that went from one public health crisis to a global health crisis. So the last three plus years here in Gower School District have really been a challenge, but have above all proved community problems require community solutions. Without those five parts of the framework, it would have been a bust. I absolutely certain about it believe in it and I and and that's why I'm inspired to share it with others because those are the parts you need to be an effective leader. Well thank you so much Victor. I really do appreciate your time today. Of course. Yeah thank you both. Thanks for listening to this school CEO conversation. You can follow Dr. Simon at Gower62 on Twitter at DRV Simon. Subscribe to School CEO at schoolceo.com for more advice, stories and strategies for leading your schools. School CEO is brought to you by Aptigee.